0: There we go. All right, Esther, start that tonight. I hope you're. Um, I hope you're uh, learning your way through the Bible so far, and I know there's a lot each time, and and it gets a little, um, gets very time consuming. And sometimes when you're trying to, maybe if you write notes and go through and try to read and pick up a little on what you're learning, but the Bible uh, um, is a, a book that you'll you'll never get reading through one time as far as understanding it all. You'll never understand it all till we get to heaven, but. It sure helps to understand what we can down here, doesn't it? So we, um, as we study this and, and uh, go through it, I hope this is helping you to see how, especially right now, the Old Testament fits together because um, we've seen and made our way all through the time uh, of all the kings uh, that, that reigned and then uh, the time of captivity. And so as we'll see in just a moment, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, these three books happen after the time or during the time, actually, of captivity, or is the captivity is coming to the end. Also tonight, I had to make another adjustment on on the uh, on the calendar on the time uh, for this because I come to find out that I had a, a date with um, Nehemiah mixed up, and so we'll we'll look at that a little bit more in just a moment. But Nehemiah was our previous book, and as we said, Ezra and Nehemiah they run right together because you see their names in, in either book there, especially uh, Ezra's name and Nehemiah, and um. These three books occur after Israel is in captivity. And as we'll see tonight, this has to do with the group of the Israelites, of the Jews that are in, um, in uh, Persia. Uh, and we, we know that um, Nehemiah was there, and he was in the king's uh, palace. He served a very important role, as we talked about last week. So at this time, they're, they're still in Persia. And this actually will occur a little bit before Nehemiah. We'll get that in just a moment. So there are 10 chapters in the book of Esther and the theme or the, the, main statement about the book is simply the phrase that is used in chapter four. We'll get to uh, such a time as this. And we'll see that tonight in chapter four verse 14 and the importance of um, God using this, this uh, lady, young lady named Esther uh, to spare God's people that were there in captivity. So, um, let's move on with that. So they they had been in captivity in Babylon, Judah had, and in Persia uh, because Persia became the next world power. Babylon, as we said when we studied um, Nehemiah and Esther, or excuse me, Nehemiah and Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, that Babylon is modern day Iraq and Persia is modern day Iran. And so, um, to give you an idea of where the location is, east of Israel, um, when they went into captivity, that's where they, they found themselves. So uh, Persia had become the world power a number of years before we get to Esther tonight. They'd become the world power. And we talked about in Ezra and in, in Nehemiah, uh, this, was, this slide was in, in those uh, studies also, that Daniel 5, chapter 5 and Daniel chapter 6 talk about how um, Babylon, had uh, their kingdom had fallen and Persia took over as a world power for a time. All right, so in, uh, when we studied Ezra, and this week I put Ezra up there when I put 114. I had that missing last week or two weeks ago. When we're studying Ezra in chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, it's, it's, um, it's where King Cyrus of Persia proclaimed that Judah returned to Jerusalem and they could come back. Well, because of that, uh, God laid it on Nehemiah's heart to come back to the land, uh, to uh, the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild Jerusalem and laid it on, Nehemiah, on Ezra's heart to come back and rebuild the temple. But the difference with um, with Esther is this is concerning many of them that decided to remain in Persia. They didn't go back to Israel. They remained there in Persia. That's very important to understanding the book of Esther. And into understanding why, as, as, uh, as I mentioned last week, giving you a little, little um, kind of a uh, little advertisement about it. God's name is not found at all in the book of Esther. And we'll see that tonight and, and maybe find find out why it's not he's not found there. But his people, the this group of, of his people, stay in Persia. They did not they do not end up going back, at least not at this time, not end up going back. Go with me to Deuteronomy, if you will, and just a moment we'll go into Esther chapter one and, and skip around there a little bit. We go back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. And so way back when Moses was still living. And before, remember, Moses was way before any of the kings. Um, He was before, way before Saul. And in fact, he was, um, Joshua was uh, Moses' minister, Scripture says. And um, then Joshua led them in the book of Joshua into the promised land. But look at chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, verses 16 to 18. And the Lord told Moses, this is what's going to happen way on after you die, Moses. Verse 16, And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, Thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. That simply meant that, you know, he would die and be buried with his, with his uh, ancestors. And this people will rise up and go whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land. God uses an interesting word there because he uses a, a term that they would understand physical adultery for spiritual adultery. And he, he, just, he uses that to, um, as a word that would help them understand uh, when they went after false gods and false idols, That's the way God felt about it. They were basically, you know, forsaking him for these idols. All right, continue that. Whether they go to be among them and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them. That's an interesting thing. These are God's people, and yet there would be a time in their history where he would forsake them. Fast forward to the book of Hebrews. The Bible tells us about our Savior. He will never leave us nor forsake us, right? Isn't that a great promise? It's great to be living in New Testament times, isn't it? I will forsake them. I will hide my face from them. They shall be de- devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, and it sure did. Um, so they will say in that day, are not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day for all the evils which they shall have wrought, in that they are turned unto other gods. So, God told Moses, Moses, this is what's going to happen Well, on after you die. Uh, my people, Moses, our people, Moses, they're going to get away from me and they're going to forsake me for other gods. So I had to adjust the calendar or adjust the timeline. Uh, Nehemiah, so if, just kind of get this in your mind. So 445, so roughly about 25, 35 years later, 35 years later or so, uh, or previous, you should say, I should say, Esther occurs for over a number of years, way before Nehemiah. So uh, Nehemiah was, he, might, he was probably living during this time, much younger, uh, if he was indeed alive at that time. Not sure how old he was when he, when he began, um, when he was under the, serving under the king. But nevertheless, Esther occurs. So in your mind, everything we saw about Ezra and Nehemiah, back up about 30 years or so and and, um, and think of Esther in those terms, that she uh, is, is, um, is living in Persia. That's where they find themselves in captivity there because Babylon, Persia had taken over as a world power from Babylon. So several years before that. So I'm going to give you two or three really easy um, breakdowns of the book, and then we're going to try to look at the chapters as best we can without getting too deep into it. And um, and look at some very practical matters tonight. So if you took the book and divided it almost in half, not quite, there is first of all in verse, chapters 1 to 4 on our GPS, the great danger to the Jews, the great danger that, that, uh, that, that came up of a sudden uh, for them there in, in Persia. Now remember the king, as we'll see in just a moment, we'll get to chapter 1, King Ahasuerus knew that there were um, that there were some Jews, some Israelites, some Jews in Persia, most likely. But he did not know that Esther was, was a Jew. and We'll find that out, was, was an Israelite. We'll find that out. Then chapters 5 through 10, we see the great, the deliverance of, of the Jews, where God uh, puts a plan together through using Esther and her hun- uncle Mordecai, and they end up, uh, God uses them to deliver. Then if you want to break it down just a little bit more in those, those uh there's an overlap in, uh, in this one. We saw 1 through 4 and then 5 through 10. So in chapters 1 and 2, we see the rise of Esther. Um, we see the lies of Haman. And then we see the prize of faith. I got this outline from, uh, from Wilmington's Guide to the Bibles where I got that one for, to, to break down. So we see um, where Esther comes on the scene in chapters 1 and 2. And then uh, Haman all of a sudden comes out of nowhere. He's an interesting character. We'll spend a little sidetrack study on him tonight. Then the prize of faith where God rewards uh, Esther's faithfulness to him and to, to God's people. Then also you can break it down this way. There is a great feast that King Ahasuerus, he's the king over Persia, and he declares a great feast in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then Esther uh, after Ahasuerus, after, after he divorces his wife, Esther comes in on the scene and she becomes the queen and she declares a feast. And then there's also a feast in chapters 8 through 10 called Purim or Purim, if you want to, however you want to pronounce that U, um, that is a uh, holiday for, for Israel. So let's look at, go, uh, go through the chapters really Just highlighting, not really, really slow, but highlighting different places in each of the chapters uh, of the Book of Esther. Remember, there are ten of them. So, when you get to Chapter One, you see where King Ahasuerus is the um, is the uh, king over over um, Persia. Let's read down from verse one through um, to verse four. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is Ahasuerus, which reigned from India even into Ethiopia over 107, 20 provinces. Now even though this is modern day Iran, as far as their location, his kingdom spread that far. It spread to um, as you see there, Ethiopia um, and India which would be south, southwest of the or actually India would be southeast a little bit and then Ethiopia would be southwest uh, in the African continent. So you see his kingdom kind of spread out like that um, to the east of Israel. It, the just as a side note, India is only mentioned a couple of times in Scripture, and both times is here in Esther. It's the only time India is mentioned here. But anyway, um, 107 and 20 provinces, 127 provinces. So he had the kingdom broke up that way into all those provinces. Um, regions would probably be what we would how we would think it would be. Bigger than a state, but it'd be kind of a region of maybe what we think of as two or three states. Verse 2. That in those days when King Ahazur sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan the palace. And remember, that's the same palace. When Nehemiah comes on the scene, the next king, Nehemiah serves under him. So Ahazurus was not the king when Nehemiah reigned. Remember we said Saul where his his time was about 30-something years later. um, In Shushan the palace. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, the nobles of the princes of the provinces being before him. And he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even a 104 fourscore days, that's 180 days for six months. People come to see his kingdom and all his riches and all his wealth and all the beauty of his kingdom. Now remember, Persia is not a, it's is not, they don't serve the true and living God. Remember, they don't, they don't serve the, the real living God. And so uh, as he declares this feast, um, he's pretty much has himself set up, you know, as is, is just um, the center of his universe. And so he wanted everybody to come see, you know, the beauty of all he had and everything. And uh, he was going to, he has a feast. that says the next uh, verse for, for uh, a couple of verses for seven days, there's a feast. And um, his uh, wife at the time, Vashti, um, did not want to be a part of that. She didn't want to, to to come to the feast and all that he was doing. And so I'm kind of I'm kind of jumping over this now. I'm, I'm leaving out some details to hit some high spots. And so um, being a a, a a pagan king, uh, it you know he it got to his uh, ego. He didn't like that. He got angry about it. And then he ends up uh, divorcing her. Um, he lets her go. He gets rid of Vashti, and he divorces her basically. And so um, you read on through there. And look at verse, um, i pick up at verse 17 and verse 18. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes. When it shall be reported, the king Ahazurus commanded Vashti, the queen, to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day and all the king's princes which have heard of the deed of the queen, thus shall be, uh, there arise too much contempt and wrath. In other words... You know what she did. Um, the other uh, Persian women will decide to do the same thing, and there's going to be upheaval in all their their households. And so the king um, was uh, put in a very difficult place, and he ends up uh, putting her away. He ends up basically divorcing her. And then you get into chapter two, and we see where um, we see where Esther comes in on the scene. And so um, pick up at verse. Um, uh, let's see, pick up at verse number five. Enter in, enter in one of our heroes here. Now in Shushan the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Who else was a descendant of Kish? You remember? King Saul. Remember earlier on, King Saul was a son of Kish. He came from the tribe of Benjamin also. So um, Mordecai is, is a descendant of that same family from Benjamin and from the family of a man named Kish, verse 6, who'd been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So Mordecai was probably on on up in in years pretty good here, and um, he had been carried away with the original group that went into captivity. And so he was still alive, and as they go into Persia, uh, into captivity, um, he is, um, he's uncle, as we find out, he's uncle to Esther. Pick up at verse 7. He brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither uh, father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. Actually, it would be a, more of a cousin. But anyway, it depends on how they, how they uh, measured family members in those days. But anyway, um, her parents had died, and he basically adopted her, and he uh, raised her up to adopt her at whatever age her parents died. There is a um, uh, Christian, uh, well, I think a Christ, Christian just put it out. There's a movie uh, called A Night with the King. Have you ever seen that movie? It's, uh, it's really, I think it's pretty accurate as far as the uh, events here. And uh, it's a it's really good movie if you've not seen that. Um, it's out on DVD and you might be able to get it on other streams or something too. But um, it's a really good, I think it's a really good uh, uh, depiction of, of uh, the book of Esther. And it it focuses a great deal on Mordecai and her relative there. And then, of course, on Esther also. So as you you read on down through here, you find out that Mordecai, he ends up hearing about an assassination plot uh, in this chapter. Um, Esther becomes the new queen uh, after Vashti is... um, um, is is set aside after after he divorces her, and you read the read in here where she becomes the queen. But here, as you read on through here, getting towards the end of the chapter, you see that Mordecai hears of a plot. He he catches wind of a plot to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Look with me at verse um 15, uh, chapter two, verse fifteen. Um, now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for her, his daughter, was come up to go unto the king, she required nothing but a he, a Hegei, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus. Ag- uh, his house royal in the 10th month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And it says there in verse 17, he loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight. And so then she becomes his, his bride. Look at verse um, 21. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate. So at this point, he's he's uh, pretty well known um, and probably respected by the king, um, or at least known by the king, but he becomes very respected at this point. Two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Tiresh, uh, those which kept the door were wroth and sought to lay hand on King Ahasuerus. They had gotten mad. They had gotten angry because he chose Esther. Verse 22, And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore they were both hanging on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. So those two of the king's chamberlains, they were uh, conspiring together to assassinate the king. And so Mordecai picks up on that, and he reports it. And so, of course, that's going to later on be much to his favor um, in the king's eyes. So he hears of that, Mordecai does, and he's a good, faithful man to the king. Then you get to chapter 3, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere comes this man named Haman. Pick up at verse 1. After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. Now, the Agag, uh, Agag was the... Um, was the, um, the king that um, was over the Amalekites. Remember when Saul was told to go in and destroy all the Amalekites? He did not. And um, king, uh, the king that was, um, was to be killed, um, Samuel actually ends up doing that when Saul wouldn't do that. And so this man is from that line and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the, verse 2, all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman For the king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence. Now, Mordecai, scripture again, God has not seen, his name is not found at all in Esther. But uh, Mordecai apparently he he knew enough the Old Testament to know, you know, you're not to to bow down and reverence anyone unless they're a king and you do that in a different way than you would a god. And so he did not like this man Haman. He knew that something was up and it wasn't good. And so he might not have been able to put his finger on it at the time, but he knew that something was not not good. So Haman, it says in verse 5, saw that he didn't bow, he didn't give him any reverence, and he was full of wrath. He just made an enemy. And Haman was enemy to Mordecai. Uh, Mordecai just made an enemy by, by not bowing down to, the, to this man. So as you read on through here, um, you find out uh, in this chapter um, that he's, he's about to plot against the Israelites, Haman is. He's about to plot against all of them. And he wants to uh, get it in writing. If you run through there, he wants uh, basically agreement in writing. We're going to destroy all of these these Jews. We're going to get rid of all these Israelites. We're going to get rid of all of them here in in Persia and destroy them. But he doesn't let the king know about that at the time. So when you get to chapter 4, again, here comes our hero, Mordecai. He steps up. And it says there in verse 1 of chapter 4 that he rent his clothes, means he tore his clothes. This was an act of humility that you see very often, especially in the Old Testament, among God's people, among the Israelites. They would uh, tear their clothes as a sign of humility, as a sign of crying out to God, and then they would, they would um, c- uh, cover themselves in, in uh, dust and ashes sometimes. And it says uh, he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city and cried with a loud and bitter cry. And it came before the king's gate for that none might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So uh, the king didn't want anybody sad in his presence, as often was the case with kings. And so um, there was great mourning among the Jews. Word got out to all of them. Apparently he got the word out best he could. And so Esther's maids uh, came and told it to her. She found out about it. So she ends up uh, talking to Mordecai. And then this is, the, this is the turning point of the whole book of Esther here. This is, uh, this is where uh, he talks to her. Pick up at verse 10, and we'll read down for a few verses here. And again, Esther spake unto Hatash and gave his commandment to Mordecai, all the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces do know. And whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have been, not been called to come into the king um, these 30 days. So um, he, he was not able to go in himself. And so Esther is the queen. She is right next to the king, not only as his wife, but um, she has a, a lot of political clout, of course, being the queen. And this is what it says in verse 12. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. In other words, if Haman finds out that you're a Jew too, he's, gonna, he's not going to stop at that. He's going to destroy you too, Esther. Verse 14. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? So he says, Esther, this is your time. You're not queen by accident. Who knows, but you are brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is something that you can do that no one else can, Esther. This is, this is your time. This is your opportunity to save our people. Verse 15, then Esther bade them return to Mordecai this answer. Go and gather all the Jews that are present in Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. She realized that what Mordecai said was very true. This was her time. And she was willing to put her life on the line for all of her people. And so she it wasn't a small thing to her. It was very important uh, to her. And so she declared, tell all the Jews around, tell everyone, spread the word, to fast for three whole days. And that would mean that they would be very serious about this. Interesting thing here, and we'll see at the end of the study, nowhere is prayer mentioned in the book of Esther. Nowhere. That seems strange to us. We'll come back to that in a moment and we'll maybe see why. That seems very strange. Now they were fasting and normally in scripture, fasting and prayer would go together. In Jesus' ministry, he would talk, about, uh, talk to his disciples. There was a time where they came and um, there was a, 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 de- a demon, a devil, unclean spirit that was unable to be cast out. And Jesus said, this kind cometh not forth, but by prayer and fasting. So usually those two things went together, but you don't see prayer mentioned here. Did they pray? I would like to think they did. But for what, even if they did, the scripture doesn't record it, which is a strange thing if they didn't pray. Or if they did pray, I should say, it's a strange thing that the scripture doesn't record it. But you don't see prayer here. Um, we'll come back to that, but Haman plots against Israel, and so I didn't get to the next slide. Mordecai and Esther form a plan to save them from destruction. They put a, they put together a plan, and she knew that the plan meant her. She had to go and talk to the king and put her life on the line to do that very thing. So in chapter five, she goes um, goes into the um, um, goes into the. Um, before the king, and then says, "You know, there's going to be another banquet." Basically, is what she tells him. Uh, goes in and and uh, and uh, proclaims and declares there'll be another banquet. Let's see. Um, pick up at verse uh, six of chapter five. Because um, there going to be there's going to be a banquet, and he tells uh, king tells Haman to put this together. Verse six. And the king said unto Esther at the banquet of wine, "What is thy petition?" it shall be granted thee, and what is thy request? Even to the half of the kingdom it shall be performed. Then answered Esther and said, My petition and my request is, that she, she just goes into this next statement, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, if it please the king to grant my petition and to perform my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I shall prepare for them, and I will do tomorrow, as the king has said. So basically, they're getting the plan together. Uh, She and Mordecai talked this over. They're getting the plan together. How can she get Haman with the king whenever she lets him know what's really going on with Haman, what he planned to do so that the king would know it and the king would be able to do something about it? So they agree to come to the banquet. Verse 5, Then said his wife and all his friends unto him, Let a gals be made of fifty cubits high, and to Mar, speaking to the king, that Mordecai may be hanged thereon. So Haman was going to have this great big party, and he was going to see Mordecai, he wanted to see Mordecai hanged. Um, and uh, to get rid of him. He didn't like him. Remember, he was the one who did not bow down to him whenever the king mentions Haman, and Haman wants to get all these accolades. He was the only one Mordecai wouldn't bow down to him. Go merrily to the king, to the banquet, and the thing pleased Haman, and he caused the gallows to be made. He didn't know that he was making the gallows that was going to be his own, that was going to be for himself. Then you go into chapter 6, verse 1. The king couldn't sleep that night, and then he found the records of, uh, of their kingdom and began to read it. That would put you to sleep probably. <laughs> All these kings of, um, of Persia, that would probably put him to sleep. And so uh, he couldn't sleep, and he was wondering what to do. What's, something is not right. And um, he, he said um, concerning Mordecai, what honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? Then said the king's servants that ministered to him, there is nothing done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman came forth to the outward court of the king's house to speak in the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows. And so uh, Mordecai knew that, or, or excuse me, the king knew that Mordecai had been a, a good man. He'd been a faithful man. He stopped the plot before for him uh, th- that was going to have the king assassinated. So he knew something was not right in, in, a, um, in an accusation against him. Look at um, verse, skip on down to verse number um, ten. The king said to Haman, Make haste and take the apparel and the horse as thou hast said and do to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate, let nothing fall thou hast spoken. So there was enough deception by Haman that Mordecai uh, was accused, and so the king uh, tells Haman, Continue on. Look at verse eleven. Then took Haman the apparel and the horse and arrayed Mordecai, and brought him a horse back through the street of the city, proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delighteth to honor and Mordecai came again to the king's gate. But Haman hasted to his house mourning and having his head covered. And Haman told Zeresh, his wife and all his friends everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise men and his wife unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews before whom thou hast begun to fall, thou shalt not prevail against him, but thou shalt surely fall before him. When they were yet talking with him, came the king's chamberlains and hasted to bring Haman to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So she had prepared this one banquet. She said, King, let this happen. Let's have a banquet. Bring Haman with you. We're going to have another banquet. And so that's where where we find ourselves in chapter number 7. So we get over to... um, Six, the king had promoted Mordecai, and yet in chapter 7, we're going to find this where that plot of Haman failed. Haman wanted to put him on the gallows, and then pick up at verse um, 5 of chapter 7. The king Ahasuerus answered and said unto Esther the queen, Who is he, and where is he that does presume in his heart to do so? And she had already told him in the verses before that, Look, there's a plot by Haman to destroy all of my people. I, I, am a, I am a Jew, I'm an Israelite, and he wants to destroy all of our people. Verse 6, Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman was afraid before the king and the queen. He was caught. He knew he was guilty. The king, arising from the banquet of wine and his wrath, went into the palace garden. Haman stood to make request for his life to Esther the queen, for he saw that there was evil determined against him by the king. Then the king returned out of the palace garden. And then you read on down to verse uh, skip, skip 8 and go to 9. And Harbona, one of the chamberlains, said before the king, Behold also the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman had made for Mordecai, who had spoken good for the king, standeth in the house of Haman. The king said, Hang him thereon. So they hanged Haman and the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then was the king's wrath pacified. So Esther puts her life on the line. Mordecai uh, he was almost put to death by accident had, had Esther not stood up and had Esther not told the king what was really going on. This Haman is the one that is the wicked one. He is the one that's made this plot and he's trying to put it all on Mordecai and put his name all over it. And then of course after that there is rejoicing in chapter 8. They, they have, a, um, they have a, a banquet in which they're able to rejoice now uh, because good things happen after that and the um, uh, the Jews were spared. In chapter twenty one of Proverbs, I threw in a mileage and efficiency here, real quick, off our GPS. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of water; he turneth it whithersoever he will. He did that for uh, Nehemiah. Remember, God used uh, Nehemiah as he stood before the king, and the king gave his blessing on Nehemiah to go back. In fact, he even helped him bankroll it to get to go back and to rebuild Jerusalem. And so here we see where the Lord uses a king, uh, in this case, uh, Ahasuerus to spare his people um, because they had, uh, they had um, uh, even though Haman had sought to destroy them, uh, God wanted to spare his people, and he saw the, the, uh, the uh, courage of Esther and of Mordecai and their willingness to stand for their people. So in chapter 9, the enemies were slain. In fact, it mentions 10 of, uh, of his sons, of Haman's sons, they were hanged also. You go read in chapter um, thir- uh, 9, verse 13, they're hanged upon the gallows also. And then there's a new feast that begins in chapter 9. It's the Feast of Purim, or Purim, and we'll come back to that in just a moment at the end. And then uh, Mordecai is promoted, promoted to the king's right hand. So it was written, let's look at the mileage and efficiency. It was written to Israel, uh, to remember for history and for posterity, um, and remember as they had already, um, you know, already had had uh, learned hard lessons under the kings that disobeyed. Is why they went into captivity in the first place. Now they're they're to learn from this. Also, uh, we see in this in this book of Esther, one of the things we see in some of the lessons here. Are, are negative, but a lot of lessons in life are, and we have to learn from them. God's people became too comfortable in a strange land. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, speaks of Abraham and talks about he was you know, basically a stranger uh, and a pilgrim. And so God's people became too comfortable in a strange land, and uh, while they were there, unfortunately, there was a plot made to get, get rid of them. The longer and farther you stay from the Lord, the more difficult it can be to return. And they, they uh, learned that the hard way also. Um, they had stayed away from him again. God's name is not even mentioned in the book of Esther. No mention of prayer, but an emphasis on human effort. Everything they did was their plan. Did they pray? I would like to think they did. But the scripture never records that any of them prayed in the book of Esther. It doesn't record of her or Mordecai or any of the rest of them. God preserved them because there is people, but there is no mention of his name. He preserved them because, you know, he had a covenant with Israel and he wanted to spare them. God always has his remnant and he wanted to spare them, even though they had been taken into captivity. um, But even though there's no mention of his name, there's no mention of being thankful. Uh, They do mention having a feast there, um, but there's no no mention of their thankfulness, even though they do have a feast. um, But unlike in Nehemiah, where you see them giving thanks to the Lord. Now, off the beaten path a little bit. We see a genuine conspiracy in Scripture, and that's from Haman. Conspiracy is found a number of times in Scripture, either the word itself or the idea of a conspiracy. The very first one that's mentioned is about Joseph, that his brothers conspired against him. So there are a lot of conspiracies in Scripture, and this is a man named Haman that conspired to destroy the Jews. Here's something interesting on our off-the-beaten path. Haman is a type or a foreshadow of the Antichrist that will show up after the rapture, during the tribulation. How so? Sudden rise to power out of nowhere. After the Lord raptures his church, there's going to be an individual that will come up uh, out of out of the sea of humanity. Revelation 13 said he stood upon the sand of the sea and uh, there arose this beast and he, of course, is the Antichrist. And he'll rise to power out of nowhere. He'll rise suddenly. Um, his pride, uh, the Antichrist had a lot of pride just like Lucifer, Satan, uh, when he fell, a lot of pride. That was part of what caused him to fall. And then a plot to destroy Israel, to destroy the Jews, just as the Antichrist will try to do during the tribulation. A demand for absolute allegiance. Haman wanted everybody to have allegiance to him. And if he'd have had his way, Scripture doesn't say, but he probably would have been after Ahasuerus next. He already had a plot, to kill, or somebody had a plot to kill him, and it may have been Haman before his name's even mentioned. But he demands... He demanded absolute allegiance, as will the Antichrist, because the Scripture says in Revelation 13 that um, in order to buy and sell you have to take a mark. Uh, you'll not be able to buy and sell or anything like that during the tribulation if you not take his mark. Another interesting thing: he had ten sons, and all of them were hanged. Revelation 17 mentions ten kings that reign with the Antichrist, and then when Babylon falls. So do those 10 kings. A lot of of comparisons. So Haman is a picture or a type of the Antichrist. Purim is a feast that the Jews um, uh, celebrate to commemorate the release from Haman. How they were uh, rescued and and, uh, spared by Mordecai and by Esther. This year it was on March 6th and 7th. And next year, where the calendar is and where the moon and everything, where they, they set the date for that, is March 23rd and 24th of 2024. But it just passed a few weeks back, a month or so back, um, their Feast of Purim for a, uh, a day um, that they commemorate. One thing you learn in Esther on Tune Up, and she's an example of this, where she said, if, if I perish, I perish An increase of risk does not excuse us from our duties. If God calls us to do something, even if it gets hard sometimes, even if it gets difficult or even dangerous, if he calls us to do something, he's going to take care of us. And you see that all throughout the scripture. You see it with Daniel. You see it with Daniel's three friends that refused to bow before the idol. Jesus and Esther is pictured uh, under Mordecai, uh, as, as Mordecai is mentioned, very last verse of Esther, ten verse three. For Mordecai the Jew was next to the king Ahasuerus and great among the Jews and accepted of this multitude, seeking the wealth of his people, but speaking peace to all his seed. So he got to sit right next, right next to um, King Ahasuerus. Of course, Esther would be on his side also, but uh, the other side would be. Uh, Mordecai. He would be his right-hand man. The Bible tells us that Jesus, having finished his work of his sacrifice forever, is set down in heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father. Esther was willing to lay lay down her life. Jesus gave his completely. He laid down his life completely. Uh, Esther was willing to do that. If it came to that, she would have done it. Jesus did that so we could Uh, have salvation in him. Esther was a willing sacrifice. Chapter four, verse 16. If I perish, I perish. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 10, um, who who paid the price for us once and for all, scripture says, but for the Christian every day, we're to be a living sacrifice. Romans 12, verse one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. That is the Lord wants wants us to live for him every day, Uh, not to be a, a sacrifice uh, a dying sacrifice like they had in the Old Testament, but a living sacrifice, day by day. A few verses for the um, home address, chapter four, verse fourteen, the probably the best known verse in all of the Book of Esther and the key of the book, uh, where she come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then four sixteen, where she said, "If I perish, I perish." And then in chapter nine, verse nineteen and twenty two, it describes. Uh, in their feast that it was a feast, a good day, and it was a day of feasting and of joy. Now again, thankfulness is not mentioned. Maybe they do. Maybe they did thank the Lord in what they did, but it never does say it. But it did say it was a day of joy because they had that feast to commemorate how God had, or how they'd been spared uh, from the enemy. All right, we'll stop there for the night on the book of Esther. Any questions, I probably a few things you might want to mention or ask, but anything on Esther tonight that you can think of. I can think of something from Sunday. Huh? I can think of something from Sunday. Oh, from Sunday? Yeah. And um, since I have an opportunity, he said that... um, Oh, about change? Two things. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, oh, oh. It's killing me, and I'm sorry. Of the quote, a bad memory and. Um, what was that? It was Adrian Rogers. He said, sometimes the good old days are a combination of a bad memory and wishful thinking. Wishful. <laughs> right, <Thank laughs> you. Right, right. Thank you. Yeah. I looked to find that in print, but I know Adrian Rogers said that. I just can't find yeah, it anywhere. I, I, looked. I know so too. I remember the wishful <laughs> yeah. thinking part. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right, anything else? Lord William we'll be in Job next week. You talk about a lot to cover. Ooh, it's going to be a lot to do in one night. That's 42 chapters. There's a lot to talk about, but that'll be a good study. All right, let's stand and close in prayer, and we'll dismiss. Thank you, Lord, for the day, and uh, we thank you for your goodness, and we thank you that we can come to you, Lord, with every need of our life. And we, we have so many of our church family we're lifting up to you tonight, and we have in our prayer request time. We're grateful, Lord, that you know every need, and we pray, Lord, that you'll help us as we pray for others to to know how you work through prayer and the way you can answer in ways that we, that we may never have imagined. Lord, we're grateful for the fact of knowing that you're a God who saves us, and not only that, you're a God who takes care of our every need because we belong to you. I pray that you'll watch over us as we leave him here tonight and keep us safe. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.